This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. We could use your help. After almost 50 episodes of the show, we're looking for some financial assistance to help us continue making it. And we're offering some monthly rewards if you do so by joining our new Patreon. At level one, you get access to special episodes. Level two gets you that, plus access to our monthly, specially curated playlists of forward-thinking music. And the level three reward is all of the above, plus a bespoke playlist made just for you, based on whatever criteria you'd like. Join us by going to EssentialPodcast.com or by clicking on our Patreon link in our social media account bios. Thanks. There's this defiance in this band that I really find um, inspiring is kind of a mild word for it. (laughs) It feels like it kind of, um, I I find it uh, endlessly exciting. You know, like something that I, I could just live with all day. You know, it's that kind of energy that can provoke you to move. Like it can elicit not just physical movement, but social movement. It feels like political music. You know, it feels like music that asks you to um, engage and to think about your relationship to others, to think about power think critically and also it gets your body it gets your blood flowing um gets you hype this is essential tremors i'm lee gardner i'm matt byers the idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Jazz pianist Vijay Iyer is one of the most respected musicians of his generation, as borne out by the accolades he's received to date, including a MacArthur Fellowship in 2013, a Doris Duke Performing Artists Award, and a lifetime appointment as a professor of the arts at Harvard University. His work is far from coldly academic, however. Soulful, delicate, nuanced and mesmerizing. It reflects a complex but highly focused mind dedicated with singular purpose to his craft. Iyer's most recent recording with the Vijay Iyer Trio, Uneasy, 
was released by ECM Records in April of 2021. The first song Iyer chose as being formative for him was Machine Gun by Band of Gypsies. We have to dedicate this one to uh, such a draggy scene that's going on. All the soldiers that are fighting in Chicago and Milwaukee and New York. Oh yes, and all the soldiers fighting in Vietnam. I had to do a thing called Machine Gun. Machine Gun. It was recorded live um, on New Year's Eve, I believe 1971, and uh, it's just like volcanic energy. It's a very outspoken political piece. Um, he starts by talking about um, the sort of basically the white supremacist war that's, that's being waged on black people in cities in the U.S. And then he says, so he says, this next piece is about all the stuff that's happening in X, Y, and Z cities. And oh, yeah, by the way, also that draggy scene that's happening in Vietnam. So he's dedicating it to the um, people who are caught up in those battles um so it's what i thought was intriguing just in the way he introduces it is how he links um u.s imperialism to american um polarization political polarization and racial strife and um particularly um, violence against black people so that's something that he just lodges in there. He kind of slips it in really quick as he's 
tuning his guitar <laughs> and then uh, they launch into it. Um, it starts with him playing in this kind of languorous way. And then there's this rhythm that catches on, which is him playing this figure that recurs through the whole piece that just, it's like a, basically a machine gun kind of rhythm. And then um, Buddy Miles, who's like this hair-raising drummer with this incredibly deep pocket and incredible force, um, comes in and joins on that figure. And so it's, it really sounds like gunshots. Um, and that kind of alternating between this like really severe, drastic kind of um, musical figure and the 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 groove that settles in um to me like it caught my ear immediately i mean i've been a fan of this album for decades now but uh that piece in particular there's something about it that um it has this like american tragedy in it uh i mean it, you know he's hendrix's musical vocabulary is coming out of the blues and there's something ancient about it. He's also working with technology in a way that extends the sound of the instrument and um, to the point where it can scream and cry and wail. Um, and then he also doubles his voice on the guitar. So when he comes in saying machine gun, tearing my body apart. It's um, in this haunting double, doubling of his voice. So, um, so it sounds like some kind of agonized chorus. Him and some technological augmentation of himself that seems to multiply him into this, uh, this, uh, I don't know, this terrifying and yet in, um, forthright kind of presence. So the way that the whole piece unfolds, it's like, um, you know, it moves between these little fragments of lyric. There's not a lot of lyrics in this piece um, that are sometimes delivered like that, doubled on the guitar. And uh, then this this kind of like careening um, almost tortured kind of soloing um, with this incredibly rich and deep groove happening from bass and drums. And it's just, uh, it's this epic piece of music that goes on. Sorry, there's a bit of street noise over here. <laughs> um, it goes on it, for quite some time. Um, and it kind of gets, it achieves this sort of like mythic, um, power over the course of its several minutes. And there's a moment um, it's, it's quite a ways into the piece where um, it goes into, the, I guess, what you might call a B section or like a bridge or something. And there's uh, Buddy Miles singing some backup <laughs> and suddenly it sounds again like this chorale almost when he comes in and uh, 
it's kind of like something opens up right there in a way that's uh I feel like gothic in its intensity. So, um, yeah, and the piece has this like sprawl to it that uh, draws you in and you feel like you never need it to end. You know, it just feels like it has this kind of infinite quality, almost like, like a ritual, you know, where when you're inside of a ritual, it seems to have no beginning or end. You know, it's just this um, infinite now. And that's how I felt about it. And then there's a way he ends it. <laughs> um, basically, the the groove kind of falls apart and dissolves, and then it's just the guitar. And it it's like this um, unimaginable wail coming from the instrument. You can't really even place it as pitch. It's partly feedback, and it's partly... Um, I'm not sure what he's doing to the instrument to <laughs> elicit this sound, but it just kind of ends in what feels like a wreck, you know. Uh, so the, just like the the intensity and the swagger and the darkness of it is, to me, very much of its time, but also 50 years later, it feels of this time, too. If if I remember correctly, he calls them uh, soldiers. He refers to the soldiers fight, f- fighting in the streets. Oh, yeah, and in Vietnam, kind of like you say, offhandedly. Uh, when when would you have uh, when would you have first encountered this? Do you remember? Sometime in my twenties, I think. <clears throat> um. When I was living in California, um, I, I I was a bit late to Jimi Hendrix because I'm, <laughs> you know, I came through a lot of other um, music and actually listened to a lot of rock and soul music growing up, um, and a lot of. Prince. <laughs> and somehow I didn't make the leap from Prince to Hendrix until I was in my twenties. But, um, in particular, I heard like some of the psychedelic, more psychedelic earlier Hendrix and had sort of, I guess like it didn't grab me at first, but then when I heard, um, the band with Buddy Miles, I remember actually it was, uh, I was on tour with this band and this drummer from DC named Sean Rickman is playing with the band. And he, that was back when we used to travel with our favorite CDs. We'd have like CD cases, you know? And, uh, I remember he was, that, that's where he played it for me. It would have been probably 96 or so. And it was just like hair raising intensity. I could not believe it. <laughs> that's like how deep the pocket was, how, hard it drove I mean basically that whole album I remember I particularly remember him playing the opening cut which is who knows um and the way for it's again it starts in a similar way where Hendrix starts playing this riff and then Buddy Miles comes in with this like this devastating fill (laughs) that then like um kicks the groove in in this way that's like 
you can't help but move to it. It's so, it's so intense. It's like um, uncompromising, you know. There's this defiance in this band that I really find um, inspiring is kind of a mild word for it. <laughs> it feels like it kind of, um, I, I find it uh, endlessly exciting, you know, like something that I, I could just live with all day. You know, it's that kind of energy that can provoke you to move. Like it can elicit not just physical movement, but social movement. It feels like political music. You know, it feels like music that asks you to um, engage and to think about your relationship to others, to think about power, to think critically and also it gets your body, it gets your blood flowing, um, gets you hype, you know, so it makes you feel like um, there's work to do. You know, I'm I'm not deeply versed in uh, Hendrix's life and career. I mean, I've, you know, I've read a bio years ago, probably not a very good bio, um, but I know that one of the great tragedies of his of his death is toward the end of his life he was you know he'd had this whole kind of psychedelic showman thing uh that was what got people's attention uh when he first sort of came on the scene um and then you know around the time of band of gypsies he was really moving away from that and you know thing the album band of gypsies is sort of you know representative of that i mean he wanted to do other things and he never really got a chance to go all the way there or go all the different places he could have gone. Um, but I think, you know, going in a more political direction or certainly a more um, seriously exploratory direction would have, would have been, would have been part of it. I mean, I have to think. Yeah. I think like, the way things are stripped down, it's, you know, it's a live album. This is a live recording. So it's not a lot of studio tricks, which he was also a master of. Like he it was innovating all these experiments with panning and overdubbing and um, wild effects <laughs> uh, to sort of make the studio recording kind of larger than life or to make it feel like this infinite world that has its own, um, uh, like a place you can just immerse yourself in, you know, where, you know, when you make a studio recording, it's kind of like you are creating these layers of detail that can be discovered on repeated listenings, you know, so it's not going to be the, the first time you hear it is not the only time you hear it. When you play live, um, you're delivering something to everyone in the room, you know, so it's really about now. <laughs> it's about this. Uh, so these re recordings of live performances have an interesting kind of double quality to them in the sense that they're both very much a snapshot of that moment. And yet, because it's a recording, it asks you what you might notice the second time or the third time or the fifth time, or, you know, in my case, probably the 500th time I've listened to this album many times. So, 
you know, I think I, my feeling is that that um, sense of needing to deliver something um, to listeners is maybe part of your own work too. I mean, uh, just on the most recent album, um, you know, there's a piece titled Children of Flint, which is probably not chosen for no reason. I mean, how 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 important is that to your own work, that that um, that political sense? Well, I'd say that um, pieces like that are born of a very specific circumstance. So it's not just about me making a piece with a specific title. It usually is that um, it came out of some some social or political circumstance or situation that necessitated <laughs> some kind of what where the music was serving some kind of action you know so that's kind of what happened with that piece um and then you know recording it becomes an ongoing reminder of uh what has happened and what continues to happen and what uh, must be done. You know. So I guess that's been a, an aspect of what I've been doing, but it, it usually is born of collaboration and of relationships and with, you know, working with people um, where uh, something comes up that we cannot ignore and we must address. The second song Iyer chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Lonely Woman by Jerry Allen.
yes, so when I was uh, about 17, I became aware of this incredible pianist who was active on the New York scene. Um, I was in college at the time and uh, trying to keep tabs on what was happening in New York. And I'd listened to, um, by then I, I was trying to be active in this music that's called jazz. I was trying to be a functional pianist in that area of music and be able to collaborate with other musicians. And I was starting to write my own music. I was really influenced by pianists like um, Herbie Hancock, um, McCoy Tyner, uh, especially Thelonious Monk more than anybody. And I felt like there were all these different strands of music and piano playing. This is in the 80s, uh, probably 88, 89. Um, there were all these different ways of playing the piano. Then I was trying to figure out where I might fit in and what any of it might, um, what I might have to offer, I guess I'd put it that way. And then I heard this very piece. It is, um, it's the pianist Jerry Allen, who are, you know, this divine, incredible, insp inspiring figure who died too young four years ago at the age of 60. Back then she was this wunderkind <laughs> or like late 20s and just like had her own sound, had her own approach. It was very understated. Um, she had incredible rhythmic power and rhythmic skill. But what's demonstrated on this recording in particular is Jerry Allen playing with two elder musicians one of whom was Charlie Hayden, um, who played for many years with Ornette Coleman, uh, you know, the musician associated with this thing that gets called free jazz, although that's not really what, that's not really a good descriptor for what he was doing. Um, but anyway, it's kind of associated with the avant-garde, I guess I'd put it that way. And then the drummer is Paul Motion, who has a, very sensitive and um, lilting light touch and um, kind of, uh, I don't know if he was an air sign, <laughs> but he's, uh, he plays like an air sign. I guess I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, and yeah, so this is, uh, this is them, that trio recording a piece by Ornette Coleman called Lonely Woman. And when I heard this, I felt, uh, again, sort of like drawn in to the infinity of it, the expanse of it, the seeming um, endlessness of it, and the, the hypnotic kind of mystery of it all. Uh, the way she plays is not very chordal, so it's these like shards of melody and little cells and fragments that kind of tumble forth. Um, 
at least when playing with these guys. She played a little bit differently with, say, a drummer like Ralph Peterson. Um, there was a bit more of an edge. She had something else to dig into rhythmically there. But with this particular trio, there's this kind of expansiveness and this like um, lyrical quality that, again, is quite haunting and um, just utterly gorgeous. And it's a piece that goes on also for something like nine minutes. And um, I love every second of it. <laughs> and it was funny because like about 20 years later, maybe more, I played this piece for some friends of mine who I play with often. Um, and they were like, well, when did you play with Charlie Hayden? They thought it was me because basically I'm so influenced by this person. Um, Jerry Allen was such a huge influence on me and um, still is to this day. Uh, so I could not help but include this piece as part of my my set here today. So this 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 unlocked it. Well, I can't. I don't know if I can say it unlocked it all for you, but this unlocked something for you. It it didn't it didn't put you off. It wasn't, you know, because I think maybe sometimes you hear people, well, speaking of Hendrix, you hear sometimes people talking about hearing Hendrix and it's like, you know, feeling like they wanted to quit because they could, you know, he, how could they possibly live up to that, mm. you know, mm. or something like mm. that. But clearly that didn't happen for you. <laughs> Are you saying I should? Maybe consider, no, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, uh, yeah, no, it really, actually, I think that's what it is for me. Um, when I hear something that mystifies and intrigues me, that means that I want to get closer to it, um, even if I don't know what it contains or how it's working, you know. Um, it, um, I think I'm drawn to something that challenges my sense of what music is. You know, and I think what's true of Hendrix is also in different ways true of the way Jerry played the piano. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, in different ways, kind of emulated what she did. Um, and I heard the lineage, like she was kind of coming out of a few other pianists who had an understated way about them. I mean, I mentioned Thelonious Monk, and he is certainly somebody you think of in that way. Um, I would also say Duke Ellington. I would say Ahmad Jamal, uh, Andrew Hill, Herbie Nichols, Randy Weston. She was, um, she was clearly connected to that lineage, I would say, um, as well as to uh, Cecil Taylor, McCoy Tyner, Sun Ra, Herbie Hancock, um, Bill Evans even. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of depth in her playing. Uh, I think the thing is the thing that was like really su sort of surprising to hear in that particular moment when there was a lot of imitative playing happening is to hear her with this very strikingly original sound. There's like you can't really say she sounds like almost anybody else. In moments, you might hear uh, 
shades of Andrew Hill or shades of Herbie Nichols, but for the most part, it's really like she has her own language and her own approach to the instrument. And um, so I think I was drawn to that, like just the raw originality of it and the, what I would call musicality of it, the way it calls to me. I I believe that you uh, knew her as well, right? Did she did she have did she understand the the depth of her influence <laughs> on you? Yes, although she was kind of um, endlessly humble, you know. Uh, yeah, I got to know her after I moved to New York in the late '90s uh, or so, early 2000s, and um, I. Uh, we basically became friends, you know, and she was really kind to me. And it's funny because I just was playing a little session here at my place with a drummer. And the story is that, like, one time I went to see her at one of her concerts. And afterwards she said, like, Vijay, come here, I'm going to drive you home. <laughs> it's your gig. You want to drive me home from your gig? Um, so she drove me up here to Harlem and she saw my place and said oh can you play music in there I said yeah she said do you have drums I said no she said I'm gonna give you some drums <laughs> so and she did so those drums were the drums we just played on today so um, there's something that's the kind of person she was she just like she would make you part of her family. You know, she would take care of you. She would look out for you. She would believe in you. And she was constantly affirming, just endlessly generous. So we were all lucky to live at the same time she lived. It, it sounds like you have a lot to uh, thank her for, although maybe your neighbors not so much. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. But they, they get back at me. The final song Iyer chose as being crucial to him was Galang by M.I.A. London calling, speak the slang now, boy say wah, go on girl say wah, wah. London calling, speak the slang now, boy say wah, go on girl say wah, wah. Slam, galang, galang, galang. yeah so the third song I chose 
is by M.I.A. It was one of the first hits that she had. It was released as a single in 2005. It's called Galang. And it was one of these things where I was drawn to the texture and the rhythm, the um, intensity. I guess maybe you're noticing a pattern here. <laughs> um, it's the it's the particular combination of sounds and rhythms that really um, shook me. I guess is the right word for it. It was like who made that and how and why, you know, it was really uh, just the, in, there's like an intense joy in it. It's very playful. The sounds are, um, have like this edge. It's kind of like punk rock, but played on, made on a sequencer or a sampler or drum machines, you know, it's like electronic punk rock. That's how it felt to me. Um, like it has a sort of DIY quality, but also really uh, hits hard. The rhythm is really strong. The groove, like the the bass line, which is just this insistent low B natural that just kind of keeps coming in on the downbeats, um, and the timbre keeps changing. Are there are all these inventive sounds in there, like. Um, uh, the particular hand claps, the particular bass drums, the particular weird um, trashy cymbal-like sounds, and uh, those synthesized tones. And then her voice, which is, has its own kind of um, joy and surprise and defiance and humor um, and it's uh, again this like intoxicating like uh, concoction you know like how does how did this happen you know this is that kind of sound where I'm like when I hear just the overall vibe of this song I wanted to find out who this person was and and what the whole deal was. And then when I found out, like actually that her deal is that she's a, she's a Sri Lankan Tamil, um, who's also, uh, a, she was an art student in the UK and has this like agit prop kind of aspect to what she does. Um, very outspoken politically because, you know, and that's gotten her in hot water over the years. Um, but it was this pretty incredible combination. To, there's a South Asian diasporic woman, quite young at the time, and so inventive with her own sort of vision of uh, slightly glitchy, super intense, super playful, bright colors, um, uh, kind of, it seemed to like capture the sound of that moment in a really interesting way, and and from a global perspective, in the sense not that it's like quote unquote world music or something, but more that it sort of is coming from this um, 
it's a voice from the unsung you know it's a, it's a voice from the from a population that is not typically heard from in the mainstream in the west and so i felt a sort of um well i found that a lot of us kind of identified with her in a certain way or had the sense like oh she's sort of speaking for all of us in a way um, i know that we are not the same <laughs> i wouldn't make that uh, i wouldn't lump us together in that way but um but i did cover this song as you may know it's on my album historicity i've tried to do an acoustic trio version of this very electric very wild <laughs> piece of music and particularly like the way it ends with this uh, it's again that that quality of self-multiplying you know she sings this kind of almost banshee like wail that has this melodic um, uh, power you know this is like it catches your ear uh, it feels like it's being screamed almost and then when I tried to play it <laughs> I was like how do I scream on the piano how do I scream a sustained note on the piano and I had to come up with some other means <laughs> it was a challenge but um, I got somewhere it basically elicited something new out of me And yeah, there's like a, I think like the, the combination of rebellious energy and real sharpness of aesthetic, you know, the way it all comes together. It's like, uh, you know, it felt like, it felt very downtown in a way. It felt like something, it had that energy of like downtown New York in the eighties or something like that, you know, um, some combination of punk and style and hip hop swagger and, you know, um, high and low fashion, <laughs> a very DIY kind of sound, but everything very carefully placed. You know, you, you, the eighties came up a few minutes ago and, uh, you know, talking about the eighties and jazz, you know, as you remember, there was in the eighties, there was a lot of talk about sort of what was okay and what was not okay. You know, there's a lot of talk about orthodoxy and there were a lot of things, there were a lot of other things going on too, that were, you know, creative and, and, you know, all over the place, but there was a lot of, you know, uh, people in suits, you know, playing standards in a very kind of prescribed way. Um, and I think since then, you know, well, I mean, I, I guess that's still a thing, but it, there are a lot of other things that happen now. Um, and one of the things that I think that's really interesting um, in the, in the, I guess at this point, decades since is um, people who play jazz opening up to a lot of other different types of influences. It's not just, you know, Stella by Starlight for the, you know, 7,000th time or whatever. It's like 
you know, looking for not only the different um, tunes, but different textures, the, the way you're describing, you know, different uh, flavors. And I think that that's um, one of the more interesting things about, um, you know, jazz is a funny word to sort of put around all this music that I'm describing here, but it's the word we have, I guess. Mm. Um, I don't know. There's not really a question in all that is there, but I, I, I think that that's one of the interesting things about uh, a lot of the, you know, the music that you've made over the last, you know, X years is that, you know, it does, you know, it doesn't stand out being filed, you know, under the jazz header card, right? It's like, that's what it is or a lot of it is, but you know, you're clearly pulling from a lot of different things. And I think that that's, uh, uh, you know, only a strength, like a lot of other things that are going on um, um, under this rubric that I guess I'm trying to describe. Hmm. It's funny. I mean, I think that um, it's true that there was a sort of, you know, ne- what we called neoconservative wave in the 80s uh, musically. Um but there was also lots of other stuff happening at that time. And I guess because I remembered it all and knew a lot of the elders, I got to know eventually a lot of the elders, musicians who were part of these like much more eclectic currents, you know, like Henry Threadgill, Butch Morris, uh, Don Byron, um, Jerry Allen, who I mentioned, of course, um, many of her contemporaries, uh, as well as Greg Tate and, um, you know, people from the Black Rock Coalition, uh, you know, basically people associated with the, uh, the different avant-garde, I guess I would say, the, you know, the Cecil Taylor Art Ensemble of Chicago, um, David Murray, you know, they were all there the whole time. <laughs> and then there was this wave that, and that you know they are still most of them are still here. Uh, a couple of the names I mentioned have moved on, um, but there is still this continuity. I think that's what it is. And the other thing is like when I think back to um, you know when I look at the history of this music, <clears throat> like one of the most iconic moments is um, John Coltrane recording My Favorite Things, 1961, I believe. When he took that song, it was a hit song. It was from the number one album of that year, which was the soundtrack to The Sound of Music, the Broadway show, original cast recording. So he took that song from there. You know, it was like a number one record that then he recast in this pretty severe way um and part of how he did it was that he was at the time also very influenced by indian music and so he wanted to organize reorganize this song in the way that indian music was organized to his ear and to from what he had been studying so you know if i so what i just said is that this person named John Coltrane, (laughs) who happens to be 
one of the defining figures in the history, um, took a hit song, took some ideas from non-Western music, and made his own way with it. You know, created something pretty revolutionary with it. So that happened 60 years ago, um, which is to say that it's not a new idea. And in fact, it's the tradition. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. To get in touch, get more information, or buy Essential Tremors merchandise, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah, yeah.